coming to the end of our series in the book of Revelation, just a couple of more chapters. Um, this morning we find ourselves in chapter 20. Chapter 20, book of Revelation. What we read here might be happening sooner than many of us think. Amen? Amen. So, uh, 15 verses, so why don't we read the chapter first and then we'll uh, see if we can make some encouraging, say some encouraging words about what was presented here. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw them in him in the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would no longer deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and in their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them were thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And they saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books, according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Father, um, incredible passage. Your Holy Spirit, we pray, would be upon us this morning as we discuss these very interesting of developments. Spirit of God, only you can take it and make it alive to us this morning. We're thankful for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Can you imagine what it was like to live in the year 1015? 1015, a thousand years ago. America hadn't been discovered by Western Europe yet. Western Europe was just coming out of maybe the Dark Ages. The Renaissance was hundreds of years away, wouldn't take place for a hundred years. Educational was, education was minimal at the best, usually residing in the, the monasteries. Uh, medicine was abysmal. <laughs> Uh, life was short, difficult, and harsh. A thousand years ago. Think about this. What would it be like to live in the year 3015? A thousand years from now. <laughs> the way things are going, <laughs> I don't know if I want to live here a thousand years from now. Now, the reason I bring this up Kind of get a perspective, okay? Look how much has changed in the thousand years from 1015 to now. Incredible things have happened, amen? Think about what could happen in a thousand years from now, if the Lord tarries, but I don't think he is going to. Hope, a hope, a hope. Uh, the reason I bring this up is because chapter 19 was the second coming of Christ. We were in there a while ago. So, Christ comes back, but everything doesn't end. There's more. There's some, but wait, there's more. And what we have here is what's presented in this chapter. A thousand years. Jesus, back on the earth, ruling and reigning. Blessing, peace, and prosperity, incredible, is happening. So we're going to talk about this chapter. Now, it has some great news for us who are believers. But towards the end of the chapter, did you notice? Very difficult passage. Anybody whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire forever. Hmm. Um, some would have some objections to what we find in this passage. So I'm hoping that as we march through it, we might be able to see what the Lord has to say for us, to us, and give us some answers as we face uh, perhaps some difficult times. Give us some answers for those who would say, how can a loving God do that? Hmm. Well, so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So we're going to march right through it. And there's four main themes we find in here. And the first is found in verses 1 through 3. First thing that we see, the thousand years with Christ. Satan is defeated and bound during this time. Satan is defeated and bound during this time. Now, you remember going all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3? It said what? God said he made a promise that the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Who was the seed of the woman? Jesus. Who was the serpent? Satan. 
So here in verses one through three, we see the promise that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15, fulfilled as he begins the process of ending all the trouble that Satan has caused through all the millennium. Now, question would come up, why bound and loosed? Why bound and loosed? Why don't you just throw them right into the lake of fire? Get rid of them. Throw them into the lake of fire. Hmm, that's a good question. Okay, let's think about it. Doesn't say why, but maybe we can expand a thought on that. The first is uh, the idea, and it's rooted and grounded in a theology called amillennialism. That's pretty close. And what that says is that Satan indeed was bound at the cross. He was bound at the cross and hindered. And now those of us who have Christ, we're going to march on and bring in the kingdom of Christ. And everything's just going to get better and better because Satan is bound. Uh, that doesn't seem to be working too well at the present time. Uh, and then at the end, he's thrown into the lake of fire. So we're in the millennium, they would say. Really? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. The other idea, and, and this has a little bit, more, um, little bit more credence. What we see here are two resurrections. First resurrection is presented, and all that takes place during that thousand years is the first resurrection, all the wonderful things, the dead being raised, and all these wonderful things. And then at the end is the second resurrection, and the second resurrection is a resurrection to judgment. So you have first resurrection to life, second resurrection, a resurrection to judgment, and that's what's presented here. So, uh, so Satan is uh, in the second resurrection. He's, that's part of what happens there, and so he takes place at the end. Well, that's all right. That has some... Interesting thoughts. The third, I think, is a little bit closer to what I think uh, the Lord is doing here. It shows that mortal beings, mortal beings are incurably fallen. <laughs> that even under the best circumstances, with Christ ruling and reigning in, in Jerusalem and that his presence in chapter 20 verses 7 through 10, at the end of the millennium, there are some that are fooled by Satan again. It's only by God's grace and his power that we are saved. We are incurably fallen. There's nothing we can do except open our lives to Christ. In our own natural self, we cannot be saved. We'll always be fooled by Satan. That's in the thought. The other one is that uh, so is Satan. <laughs> he's incurably fallen. He's locked up in the abyss for a thousand years and he's let out. And what does he do? He goes back to the same thing he's always done, fighting against God. I came across one other one. Prior to us going from the thousand year reign of Christ into eternity, um, this is an opportunity for, believe it or not, for those to weed out those people who were born during the millennium, to weed out those who really were not believers. Really not believers. Because when we go into eternity, 
Only believers go into eternity with God. Okay. So first thing we see is Satan is defeated and bound during this time. Second point that comes up is found in verses four through six. Those who believe are in the first resurrection. Those who believe are in the first resurrection. Now, the Lord had promised, he made a promise throughout the Hebrew scriptures that one day a descendant of David would rule the earth from Jerusalem. That promise is repeated over and over and over again. Just want to take a look at a couple of passages. The first is found in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. This is the prophecy of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And it is this name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So there's that promise that was made. Now, a lot of people think that all the promises that were found in the Hebrew scriptures were transferred to the church, were transferred to the church because Israel rejected the Messiah. I don't believe that's true. It says here that God is going to raise up a descendant of David who is Jesus, and he will rule and reign in Jerusalem. And the promises he made to Israel will be literally fulfilled in those days. There's another one. Um, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Now it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills. And all nations will stream to it. Everybody's going to come to Jerusalem. And many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Once again, describing this time when Christ, the seed of David, will rule and reign on the earth. The last one I'm going to look at is Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 6. There's, there's earlier it talks about uh, Jesus being a, as it say in first, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, that's the, Jesus, spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Then it says, and the wolf will lay down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat and a calf and a young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play with the hole of a cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the whole earth will be full with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's an incredible description. And there's many other passages we could look at this morning. Where during this thousand years, there's gonna, it's going to be peace on earth. Uh, men will take their swords and 
beat them into plowshares. There's not going to be any war. It's going to be, why? Because it says here that Satan will not be able to deceive the nations any longer. An incredibly wonderful time here on this earth. Well, the question would be, who takes part in this wonderful time? Who's there during this time? Well, let's think about it. First, we have who? The church. Now, the church and all those who died in Christ, they were raptured, remember? Prior to the tribulation, they went up prior to the tribulation, and they were in heaven during the tribulation and returned with Christ with resurrected bodies. This is important. They have resurrected bodies, eternal bodies. Okay, They're going to be there. And we're going to be there. You're going to be there. Okay. Then, notice in verse 4, who else is going to be there? And I saw thrones and judgment. We'll talk about that in a minute. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image had not received the mark on his forehead and their hand and they came to life. Who is that? These are the folks that were not Christians at the rapture. They were not Christians. They went into the tribulation not as Christians, but what happened? They got saved. They came to know Christ. However, they were killed because of their faith. That's what verse 4 says. They didn't yield to the Antichrist, and they were killed, and they died. What happens at the beginning of the millennium? They are raised and given new bodies, new bodies, immortal bodies, and they go into the kingdom, the thousand-year reign. Okay. Who else is there? Who else is there? Tribulation saints who lived. Tribulation saints who lived. Now, not everybody dies. Not everybody dies during the seven years of tribulation. There are some people, by God's grace, who are able, who are able to live through the, the tribulation, and they make it alive with natural bodies. And they also go into the millennial reign, that thousand years. Who else goes there with natural bodies? Remember? The 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Look with me in Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb was standing on Mount Zion. Where's he standing? In Jerusalem. And with him, 144,000 having his name and the name written of their father foreheads. So, who goes into the tribulation? The 144,000 Jews. And those who were able to live through the tribulation had been saved during the tribulation, but they didn't die. They go into the tribulation with real natural bodies. That's a very important point when you begin to think about whether it's a pre-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture. Think about it. Okay. There's one other group. Who have I forgotten? The Hebrew saints. What about them? When are they raised? Excellent question. Let's take a look. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. 
and there will be a time of distress. There's the tribulation such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. At that time, your people, everyone is found written in the book, will be rescued. Then he qualifies it. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life. But to others, disgrace and everlasting contempt. So at the beginning of the millennium, all of our Old Testament people who loved the Lord during prior to Jesus Christ but had faith in God's word and came to know God, they will be resurrected and they will be there with new bodies. According to Daniel 1, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Okay. Who doesn't take part? Who doesn't take part? Unsaved people. Now, there are some people who also live through the tribulation, but they don't get saved. What happens to them? If you will read, we won't read it this morning, if you look in Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, towards the end, it talks about a thing called the sheep-goat judgment. Do you remember that? You remember the passage? It says when Christ returns, he'll sit on his throne and he'll separate all the nations. On one side will be the sheep and on the other side will be the goats. What does that mean? Who are the sheep? He describes the people who love the Lord, the people who uh, serve the Lord. They are the sheep and they're welcomed into eternal life. Who are the goats? The people who denied Christ, who people who didn't, give, uh, didn't live a Christian life. And they are consigned to Hades and wait for the final judgment. So people who made it through the tribulation were not killed, but yet did not receive Christ. They are judged by Christ when he returns and destroyed and sent to Hades to await the final judgment. Okay, now you're saying, well, wait a minute, Neil, you left something out. Verse four, and then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. Who are they judging? Good question, good question. Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, verse 28. Jesus is talking to his disciples. But I don't think that's limited to his disciples, but perhaps it is. But I have a feeling with the 12 thrones, I think he's talking about the church. Listen to what he says. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you. Here it is, verse 30, Luke twenty-two thirty, 30. That you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Hmm. Either the 12 apostles or the church judge the 12 tribes of Israel, our Old Testament saints. Wait a minute, are you saying? That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus said. Now, what are they being judged? They're not being judged according to their salvation. They're being judged for their rewards. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it talks about us being judged? 
what they call the Bema Seat of Christ. The Bema Seat of Christ is when we're judged and based on what, how we've lived our lives, we are given rewards. Well, that's the same thing happens to the Old Testament. But I think they're being judged by either the apostles or perhaps the church. Interesting time. Okay. How about those people, you're saying, who go into the millennium and, they're, and they're, they're alive with natural bodies, what happens to them when they die? Because they're not going to live a thousand years. Ah, a very good question. Look at verse 5. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So those who go into the millennium with natural bodies and pass away, I believe they are resurrected and given new bodies prior to going into the eternal state. Confused? I hope not. I hope not. Now, the thing that we have to remember as we look at verses 4 through 6, those in the first resurrection, what we call the first resurrection, have bodies that are for eternal life. Okay? Eternal life. Those who are in the second resurrection are given bodies, are given bodies for judgment. Every, um, you just don't cease to exist. You are an eternal being, and you'll, given, you'll be given a body based on, if you've received Christ, a body of eter- for eternal life that's fit for eternal life to live with God. And if you reject Christ, you'll be given a body that will be fit for judgment. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, you remember that phrase? It's a silly jingle. Born twice, die once. Born again, and you're born of your mother. If if that happens to you, if you're born of your mother and born again, you'll only die once. Born once, die twice. Born once, only of your mother. You will die physically, and then you will die eternal death. That's the second resurrection, and you don't want to have any part in the second resurrection. Okay, so Satan is defeated and bound during this time. Those who believe are in the first resurrection. The next uh, section is found in verses 7 through 10. The final rebellion takes place. The final rebellion takes place. Now, at the end of the millennium, Satan is released and gathers together the non-believers. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said nobody, nobody who's a non-believer goes into the kingdom. That's right. They don't. Who are these folks? Notice what it says. Satan is released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. Well, who are those people? Now, remember... We had people who made it through the tribulation who were believers and we had the 144,000 Jews that went into the millennium with natural bodies. What were they doing during that thousand years? They were getting married and having children and it was a wonderful time and with Jesus there, there was very little death and disease and so just a lot of things going on and so the earth was repopulated. What happens? Can you believe it? After a thousand years with Christ ruling and reigning, from Jerusalem, there are some people who maybe yield to him outwardly but are not true believers. And when Satan is released, he deceives them and they go along with them. 
And we have this final battle that's described in verses 7 through 10. The devil who deceived them, it says, is thrown into the lake of fire where the Antichrist and the false prophet have been waiting for him. And they're not having a party. Okay. Now some would say, notice uh, in verse 8, it talks Gog and Magog. Some would say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I remember, isn't that mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39? Now some people say the Gog and Magog mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is what's happening here. Some say yes, some say no, but I say no. I think they're two different battles, two different battles. If you read in detail the attack of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it's a different, it's a completely different scenario, completely different scenario. But um, some say it is, some say it isn't, but that's not important, but I think this is something completely different. What it is is the final rebellion when those who, even though we're alive with natural bodies, even then, with Christ on the throne, they rebel and are deceived by Satan and destroyed and thrown into Hades to await the final judgment. Okay. So, we've looked at three things. The final one is found in verses 11 through 15. And this is a very difficult one. Final judgment is rendered. Final judgment is rendered. Psalm 1, verse 5 says this. It says, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. What does that mean? It means that they will not be able, not be able to stand, not make it through the judgment of God. They won't, they won't uh, escape the judgment of God. In um, John chapter 5, Let's see if I can find it here. John chapter 5. Um, Jesus says something about this. John chapter 5. Here it is. Verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. This is the words of Jesus. And they will come forward. Those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life. First resurrection. And those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. So, nobody will just be destroyed. As I said, the saved will be given bodies for resurrection, for eternal life. Those who don't know Christ will be given bodies for judgment. That's clearly taught in the Bible. Now, notice there are two set of books. Do you notice that? And it says in verses, verses 12, and the dead and the great and the small, they're all resurrected, given new bodies. Bodies fit for judgment. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Book of life. Those whose names are written in the book of life are those who have received Christ. Okay. But also, there's another book. And it's a book of deeds. A book of deeds. So what's going on here? 
Notice verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. But notice also, the second book is a book of deeds, and they're judged by what they have done. Now, what does that say? Well, it says two things. We are saved first by faith. Faith in Christ, amen? We're saved by faith, but we're judged by our works. By our works, by what we've done. In James chapter 2, it says, what good does it do if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that kind of faith save him? And the answer implied is, no. Why? Because if you have saving faith, if you have saving faith, you will not just say, I know Jesus and I go to church, but you will live a life that is exemplified by Christian deeds and actions. That's what he's saying. These folks here, and we will be judged, we will be judged by our work, not for salvation, but remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll be judged and our works will, will render our reward. Here we have, we're saved by works, but we're saved by faith, but we're judged by our works. Okay, the second thing it says, it also implies levels of judgment. As there were levels of rewards, there will be levels of judgment. So people like Mao Zedong, Hitler, uh, Stalin, they're, they're going to find a place reserved deep in the bowels of hell for what they've done. People who uh, blow up buildings with airplanes and strap bombs on little children to do suicide bombs, they will, that place will be reserved under the, the harshest penalty of God. And there'll be no virgins for them. No virgins for them. So there's levels of rewards for saints, and there's levels, levels of punishment depending on the kind of life that you live. But notice, it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. No matter how you mitigate it, it doesn't sound like a very pleasant experience. And notice, verse 10, it says that that lake of fire and the torment will be forever and ever. Hmm. That's a difficult passage. Okay. So we've looked at our passage. Now let's make three biblical responses as a result. The first, and you need to hold to these. You need to hold to these in light of what we've just read. You've got to hold to these. First, God wishes none to perish. No matter what you believe about the calling of God and the sovereignty of God, what is written in verses 11 through 15 breaks the heart of God. Second Peter 3.9 says, 
God is not willing, God is not wishing that any should perish. Did you hear that? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all might find life. What is written here breaks the heart of God. In Ezekiel chapter 33, I'll get to that passage in a minute. Ezekiel 33 says this. And it's here. I think here. There it is. This is the Lord. Say to them as I live. This is what Ezekiel was told. Say to them as I live, declares the Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Then he says, listen to the heart of God. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you then die? The heart of God is broken by what we see here. God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all might come to saving faith in Jesus. Mark this down. I won't turn to it, but you can mark it down. Matthew 25, 41. Matthew 25, 41. Jesus says that the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. What does that mean? It wasn't prepared for mankind. But if you insist, you can go there. That's not the heart of God. The lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for mankind. It's not the heart of God that anything that we find in verses 11 through 15 should happen to you or anybody that you know. God is not willing that any should perish. Keep that in mind, my friend. Secondly, God has revealed himself to everyone. God has revealed himself to everyone. In Romans chapter 1, you might want to turn there. We'll look at this for just a minute. Verse 18, 118. The question would come up, well, Pastor Neil, what about those people who have never heard of Jesus? What about some strange group of people maybe up in the mountains of Australia or the depth of Africa or somewhere? They never had a chance. They never had a missionary come up. Nobody ever came and told them about it. How can God be a God of love and send them to hell if they've never heard about Jesus? They've never had a chance. Maybe you've had that question asked to you. And it's asked all the time to us. Well, there's an answer. Look with me in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. How do they suppress the truth? Well, let's read on. Because, notice what he says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. They know about God. For God made it evident to them. How did he do that? Keep reading. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. And now here's the phrase I I wanted to point to. So that they are without excuse. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? They are without excuse. Now, this is what they call natural revelation. Not enough to get saved. Not enough to get saved. 
because there's special revelation. Special revelation is the Bible. So what does this mean that God has revealed? So they're without excuse. What I believe this is saying, what I believe the Bible is teaching, that everyone knows there's a God. They know in their heart because they see, even as it says, his eternal power and divine nature as evident by creation. They know there is a God. Many, unfortunately, will turn from that knowledge and say, no, I want to live my life the way I want to. I, want, I don't want to pay any attention to what I know. And they turn from it. And the rest of it, chapter, Romans chapter 1, details what happens to them. However, a few, hopefully more than a few, will say, there is a God. There is a God. I know there's a God. How can I find out about him? How can I know him? How can I come to a place where I recognize him? James chapter 4 verse 8 says what? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There, there's the answer. There's many people who turn away from the natural revelation and they reject that which God has put in their heart. However, there are those who hunger and seek for the living God. And I believe if they'll draw near to God, God will send them a missionary. God will send them a track. God will send a friend to them. God will send someone to them if they'll draw near to God. He will draw near to him. Now, if that doesn't happen, then our Bible is not true. But I believe that's exactly what the answer is to what about people who've never heard, who've never heard. They've turned away from God. Those who draw near to God, he will draw near to them. So, first thing, God wishes none to, to perish. Secondly, God has revealed himself to everyone. Thirdly, God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived, my brethren. What you sow, you will reap. Now, as we read these verses, especially verse 15, it just seems so harsh. And in our natural kind of mortal beings, we think, oh, that sounds so difficult, Pastor Neil. And you know why? Because oftentimes, we don't want to suffer the consequences of our own action. We think somehow, I can live my life the way I want to, and then when the truth is revealed, I can welsh my way out of it. Isn't that true? I can kind of sneak out of it. Let me give you an example from my own life. A couple of years ago, I was um, repairing the sprinkler heads. I had five sprinkler heads in my, that sprinkle my front. This was before the the drought, and I had to repair them. So I bought five new sprinkler heads from Home Depot, and as I was putting them on, I made the mistake of when I glued part of it, some of the glue ran into the, I turned them upside, don't ever do that, don't turn them upside, because the glue runs into the, the pumps and ruined them. Well, I put them all on there and they wouldn't work. Well, I pulled them off and I said, oh, Neil, don't do that. But I still had the boxes, and I thought, wait, wait, wait. I'll just take the pumps and put them back in the boxes and take them back to Home Depot. 
That's what I thought. I said, no, I can't do that. So you know what I did with those five sprinkler heads? I threw them in the trash. And I went out and I had to pay the penalty of my own stupid mistakes and buy five new ones. You see, but in my heart, see, I wanted to do wrong but not pay the consequences. You can't do that. What you sow, you will reap. And you can tell God all your life and die in that state and he will grant your wish. You'll have nothing to do with him in eternal life. And that is described in verse 15 and it's called the lake of fire. If you don't want to have anything to do with God, he says, okay. And you end up in a place called the lake of fire. Now, all of us have had stories. You find those silly stories about people dying and going to heaven. You know, there's a, there's a million of them. I selected one of my best. Let me read it to you. A couple in Southern California were planning to get married. But before they were getting able to get married, they were swallowed up by an earthquake. The next thing they knew, they were standing together in heaven. Here we go. And as soon as they were presented to St. Peter for processing, they asked Peter if they could get, still get married. Oh, Peter hesitated for a moment and said, well, let me think about it. I'll get back to you on this. A week passed, then a month, six months, but still no word back from St. Peter. After seven months of waiting, they were approached by St. Peter and a, with a pastor following close behind. All right, you can get married now. The couple thanked Peter for granting their request. But now they had a second request. Over the seven months of waiting, they felt it would be wise to draw up a prenuptial agreement. So Peter was upset and he told the couple, listen, it took me seven months to find a pastor up here. How long do you think it's going to take me to find a lawyer? There's a, there's a hundred stories like that about people dying and going to heaven. And some of them are, you know, that's funny. And I'm not making fun of my lawyer friends because I made fun of pastors, okay? So it's okay. So, <laughs> uh, but that's not reality, is it? That's a silly story. It's good to tell and laugh about it. But that's not reality, is it? Here's reality. Here's reality. Here's really what happens. The Bible tells the truth about heaven and the kingdom of God. But it doesn't have to end that way. It doesn't have to end that way for you, and it doesn't have to end that way for any of the folks that you know, as we see in verses 11 through 15. It doesn't have to happen that way, my friends. Why? John 3, 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes should not perish, but what? Have eternal life. It doesn't have to happen that way. The letter of John, the first letter of John. Those who have life, those who have the son have life. Those who do not have the son of God do not have eternal life. They're in the second resurrection. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes into the kingdom except through me. Jesus reiterates over and over again that he came to bring life and life more abundantly. We need to respond to the reality of what is written in the Bible. Now, how does this apply to us? 
Really simple. We'll close with this. Those of us who have not been born again, my friends, here's, here's a severe warning. God is not willing that any of you perish. That's not his heart for you. His heart is that you might find life. And he's made a way. And you know there's a God. You know there's a God. You know it in your heart. Because that which is seen in creation speaks of his nature and his character. You know it is. You can turn from that and suffer the consequences. Or you can say, God, I need to find you. I need to know you, creator God. And if you'll draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. That's the first application. Second application is those of us who are in the kingdom, those of us who are going to be spending a thousand years with Christ, we need to tell those who don't know yet. Because there's an awful fate waiting for those who don't know Christ. Now, either we believe the Bible or we don't. Some say, well, God is so loving, everybody can get in. Really? That's not what this passage seems to teach. So if we really believe it, if we really, really believe it, should not our heart be for foreign missions? Should not our heart be for those in our neighbors, in our workplace, in our family, that they might come to know Christ? Can you force anybody to know Christ? No. But we can certainly pray, and we can certainly be a witness. Well, my time is up. No, matter of fact, it's way up. It's way over. But it's an important subject. And I can't blame it that I've gone over on my two dear saints because they were perfect. So let's pray. Father, we want to look at this passage uh, with clear eyes. Hoping that we might be a witness, that we might be part of a mission team, that we might have some part in taking those who are not yet in the kingdom and telling them of a love of Christ and then, as a result, of their rejecting that love, of that which awaits them. May we be careful to speak the truth in love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me this morning.